I invite you to turn in a Bible to 3 John. There's only one chapter, so if you find 3 John, you're in the right chapter. And there are only 15 verses. As we've said, 2nd and 3 John are two of the shortest letters in the New Testament, the two shortest. This letter is written, we believe, by the Apostle John, who's identified in the opening verse as the elder, and he writes to a beloved brother in Christ and leader in the church named Gaius. And so I invite you now to hear God's word. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. This is the second time in a period of three Sundays that we have tackled an entire book of the Bible in one sermon. Now granted, both these two books are the shortest in the New Testament. Nevertheless, as my seminary preaching professor from Scotland used to say of a passage like this, it's just busting with homiletical material. In other words, you could preach several sermons from a passage like this and not exhaust the biblical content that is there. So there's a little bit of trepidation in tackling a whole book of the Bible in one sermon because I had another seminary professor, preaching professor, who urged his students to aim for strict unity of theme. Say one thing and say it well. Don't be like a shotgun that scatters shot pellets all over the place. You be like a rifle. Figure out what God wants to say and direct that intentionally. That particular preaching professor likened good preaching to a classical symphony. Much like Beethoven's fifth symphony in C minor with its familiar four-note motif. Dun-dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun-dun that's woven throughout its four distinct movements. 
And so much like examining a, a diamond with its many facets, we must seek to discover from Scripture what there is in the way of elder encouragement in this brief letter from the elder who we know as the Apostle John. Our theme today is elder encouragement, and our goal is to explore how that theme is revealed in this third letter of John. So John, the elder, he was likely an older man at this time, but he was also a leader. The Greek word presbuteros, from which we get the word presbyterian, is the word for elder. He was a leader in the church, one of God's ordained leaders set apart for leadership. And he writes to Gaius, my be the beloved Gaius, who may have been an elder as well. It certainly was a leader in the church. And we want to hear from this elder some encouragement. Encouragement for the elders of this church. Encouragement for this church as a whole. Now, from the days of the former covenant... The Lord has appointed elders to lead and shepherd the people of God. The pattern of appointing elders continued in the new covenant and continues to this day in many churches which see this pattern as the Lord's ordained pattern for shepherding the flock of God. And so this brief letter is written by one who's identified as the elder who writes to the leader of a local church, presumably another elder, with words of encouragement and exhortation. And so our goal today is to answer the question, what was going on with these people and how does that speak to us today? In this church where Gaius was, there were issues of truth and love, as in any church. We're always focused on right doctrine, the truth of God, and loving. We're called to love in truth and speak the truth in love. So we always want that balance of truth and love. And there were also issues in this church of joy and pain in relationships. There was great joy in knowing that some were walking in the truth. There was great pain in having others turn away from the truth and oppose God's will. So God in his goodness and love gives us instruction. Instruction for elders, for leaders in the church. Instruction for the church as to what we're to be about, who we are to be. And so that's what we see in this letter of 3 John, God's instruction. That's a mark of God's love for us, that he cares so much about his church that he has given us this instruction. In Romans 15, it says this in verse 4, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So what was written in 3 John was written for our instruction. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, now these things happened to them as an, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So this letter is from the elder to an elder or leader, a pastor or shepherd of a local church, the elder describes and prescribes how leaders are to be and how the church is to be. And so in a sense today, I'm talking to our elders, those that God has raised up among us to lead and shepherd this flock, but I'm talking to the church as a whole because God wants all of us to hear what his plan is for the church. Before we merged 
into one congregation. Both previous congregations were part of an organization, a fellowship, an association called Nine Marks. Ninemarks.org is the website. It was developed by a pastor named Mark Dever in Washington, D.C. And that organization has identified nine marks of a healthy church. Well, in this text in 3 John, I see five different marks of a healthy church. And so we're going to look at those today. But God has given this instruction to elders, to pastors, to shepherds, to lead and shepherd and care for the flock. Now, all Christians are called to have their lives conform to the character of Christ. So in one sense, we all share the same calling, namely to be molded into the image of Jesus. But those in the body of Christ who are entrusted with authority and leadership and responsibility are held to a higher standard. And so what is incumbent on all believers is especially incumbent upon elders and leaders. So I see in this letter five things elders are to model and the church is to practice. And so as we're thinking about directions and elders' encouragement, directions for elders, for shepherds of the flock, we're reminded of Jeremiah 23, which was read earlier this morning, that God was concerned about shepherds who were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. I'm grateful, as Lee just prayed for our elders, that God has raised up people among us to lead well the people of God. But in Jeremiah's day, that was not the case. There were shepherds who had scattered the flock of God and driven them away. They were taskmasters rather than shepherds. And in verse 2 of Jeremiah 23, the Lord speaks through Jeremiah and says, You have not attended to them. And there's a play on words because the next verse, the next sentence says, Behold, I will attend to you. Can't you just hear a parent saying that? You haven't attended to my word, so I'm going to attend to you. But God, as our Father, was speaking to the shepherds who had failed to shepherd the flock. And God, in his mercy, said, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. And that one day, behold, the days are coming, Jeremiah 23, 5 declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So God cares so much about his flock that when human shepherds failed his flock, he promised to raise up the chief and good and great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And God has placed loving shepherds over his flock today. And 1 Peter exhorts those elders to, as a fellow elder, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so in a sense today, this is like a coach talking to the team captains, saying, this is what we're about. This is what we want to model for the rest of the team. And so John, the elder, is writing to a a leader, a captain, and he's saying, this is what we want to model for the larger body of Christ. In Ezekiel 34, there was also an issue with shepherds. 
the shepherds were, the sheep were scattered. The shepherds were not fulfilling what they were called to do. And the Lord rebuked those shepherds. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the straight you you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And so in contrast to all of that, the Lord says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. So God has given instruction to the shepherds, to the leaders of the flock, And he wants them to hear it and to model it and the church to put it into practice. And so here are the five marks that I see in this text. The first one is rejoicing in love and truth. We see this in verse 3. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. So John the elder is writing to Gaius. We don't know who this Gaius is. Gaius was one of the most common Roman names. We see the name Gaius several times in the New Testament. It's not necessarily the same one here that's mentioned anywhere else. We don't know for sure. But this Gaius was a leader in the church, and John the elder had great joy. He rejoiced greatly in this beloved Gaius because the brothers, the missionaries who had been traveling among the churches, came back and reported that Gaius was walking in the truth. Now, there's a phrase in verse 3 that we need to be cautious with in our day and age, and that's the word, the phrase, your truth. Your truth. This is not the New Age definition of your truth, which says, you have your truth, you have your truth, I have my truth, it's all relative, They all can coexist together. That's not what the elder is saying to Gaius. When he says, your truth, he's meaning that I see a pattern of life in you that is conformed to the truth of God. So it's not subjective truth, but the truth of God. And walking in the truth means to live consistently with the gospel. That's what was characterizing the life of Gaius. And John, the elder, rejoiced greatly. He said, I have great joy. I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. And then verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And so the elder John related to Gaius as a spiritual father. Perhaps he led him to faith in Christ, but he certainly considers him his child in the faith. And he has no greater joy than to hear that his children are walking in the truth. It's a good test is to see where you find your greatest joy in your own life and in the lives of your children, those entrusted to your care. Is it that they be a great athlete or that they be a scholar or musician or entertainer or that they be a doctor or a lawyer or have a certain kind of house or marry well Or is your greatest joy that they would be walking in the truth, that their life would be conformed to the character of Jesus Christ? Where is your greatest joy today? Is it in the sunshine and the warm weather? After all the rainy, cloudy, gloomy days we've had, that can be a great thing to find joy in, but not our greatest joy. Is it in ice cream or a tender and juicy steak or sports or shopping or sex or the stock market? 
God has created, given many things for us to enjoy in this life, but our greatest joy always needs to be found in him. And when we relate to our children, to those entrusted to our care, biologically or spiritually, our greatest joy should always be to hear that they're walking in the truth. We can test that because if you're a parent, you know the greatest discouragement is when children are not walking in the truth, when they're making foolish decisions, when they're walking away from God. The psalmist said, you show me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. So, God wants to give us great joy, to rejoice in love and truth. So John, the elder, was rejoicing in the love that he had, was able to share with his brother Gaius. He was rejoicing in the truth that uh, was the pattern of the life of Gaius. And so we rejoice in love and truth. We, we love in truth one another. And we speak the truth in love. And we can see this love, this love desires the best for others in every way. In verse 2, we see this, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. So John the elder was not merely concerned about the spiritual life of Gaius. He was concerned about his physical health and his physical well-being. Now, some texts talk about prosperity or use the word prosperity, and that's opened the door for the whole prosperity movement, which teaches that if you're a follower of Jesus, you should have the finest of everything this world has to offer. That is a false gospel. God will always give us enough, but we are to treasure Jesus, not the things of this world. And so we rejoice in love and truth. A second mark, goal for the church and for leaders and elders is refreshing partners in the gospel. Throughout the New Testament, we see in several letters emphasis on refreshing the hearts of the saints. Paul wrote to the Romans and he said in chapter 15, verse 32, so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 18, they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. 2 Corinthians 7, 13, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. 2 Timothy 1.16, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Philemon 1.7, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. What a gift when the hearts of the saints are refreshed through the lives of believers in the church. So what was going on in this early church was traveling missionaries were coming and they needed a place to stay. And the early church developed an instruction manual called the didache, which is a word that means instruction. And it was an instruction manual for the church and it had very specific instructions for what was appropriate when visiting missionaries came. They could stay one or two nights. They could be given food, housing, and some provisions to keep them on their way. But if they asked for money, 
That was a sign of a false prophet. If they stayed three nights or longer, that was a sign of a false prophet. They were trying to make trade on the ministry of Christ. And so the early church had very specific instructions. Now, we don't have this so much in our day because missionaries who come on a leave from the mission field may stay with family. They may stay with someone else. They may have a, their mission board may have provision for them. But when we have had guest ministries and missionaries come among us, you have always welcomed them and you have shown hospitality to them. And that is a credit to you and to your love of the truth that you're seeking to refresh partners in the gospel. John writes to Gaius and he says that these visiting missionaries may be strangers. That's what they're called in verse 5. Beloved is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. You've never met them before. You haven't known them, but you've welcomed them because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. You've welcomed them among you. You've shown them hospitality. He says it's a faithful thing you do. When we welcome and refresh the hearts of the saints and partners in the gospel, it honors God and it blesses those who serve on the front lines. Now, not every believer is called to go as a missionary. Certainly the Great Commission uses the term go, but the command is make disciples. And the idea of that text is that we, as we go through life, that we're making disciples. Some will go to other cultures. Some will go to other people groups. Some will leave their family, their homeland, and go with the message of the gospel. Not everyone is called to do that, but all are called to partner in the gospel. And God's word gives us great incentive in this task. It gives us great motivation to partner in the gospel, to refresh the saints by welcoming those who come among us in the name of Christ. One of these incentives is in verse 7, that they are serving for the sake of the name. Now, the name isn't mentioned, but of course, it's referring to the name of God, Jesus, Yahweh, the divine name. They're serving for the sake of the name. They want God's name to be known, to be treasured. They want God to be glorified throughout the world. And so that's what they're about. That's one reason to partner with them. Another reason is that they're accepting Nothing from the Gentiles. And here, I don't believe Gentiles is referring to an ethnic classification, but it's rather saying unbelievers. So if you're like I am, you get calls at home, and they're calling for this cause or that cause, and you decide whether or not you'll partner with them in that work. And one of my guiding principles is, if it's an unbelieving organization, I mean, some I will partner with, but there are plenty of unbelievers who will partner with them. But if it's a Christian ministry, unbelievers aren't likely to support them. So I'm going to give primarily in those ways and partner with those kind of ministries. So they were serving for the sake of the name. The unbelieving world is not supporting them. And so God's word gives us great incentive to help and to refresh these partners in the gospel. And perhaps the greatest incentive is in verse 8. By so doing, we are fellow workers for the truth. When we partner with the ministry and mission of Jesus Christ around the world, we are fellow workers in the cause of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, whoever 
receives you, receives me. That's a great incentive that when strangers come among us, like Hebrews 13, 2 says, show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels without knowing it. We have great motivation and incentive to refresh the partners in the gospel. God is saying we have a part in what they're doing. In the next mark I see of a healthy church is responding to error and opposition. And here we come in contact with a man named Diotrephes. And it doesn't tell us much about Diotrephes. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. We don't know anything else about him other than what's right here. But his error was related more to character than doctrine. It doesn't tell us that he was teaching a false doctrine, but it tells us that he is one who likes to put himself first. Or the Greek word there is the same word that's translated in Colossians 1.18, preeminent, where Jesus Christ, that in all things Christ might be preeminent. What Diotrephes wanted to be was preeminent. He wanted the focus to be on him. He wanted it to be all about him. Those people are danger in a church. But we need to be careful here as we look around trying to think who is like Diotrephes because we all are to some extent. James and John, John, the writer of this letter, he knew what it was to desire preeminence the first place. After Jesus had foretold how he was going to go to the cross, He and his brother come to Jesus and they ask that they might have the first place. It says in Mark 10, um, Jesus has said, See, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise And you would think James and John, these leaders in the inner circle of Jesus, that they would be focused on what Jesus has just said. And Lord, is that really going to happen to you? But James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. That came out of the mouth of James and John. And here's John writing about Diotrephes saying he likes to put himself first. I can imagine that the Holy Spirit had convicted John about that. And he saw what a terrible thing that is. And he turned from that. But we must all guard against putting ourselves first. Jesus came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So all of us, but especially those called to leadership in the body of Christ, must be constantly on guard against this attitude of seeking to put ourselves first. The Greek word there is really uh, instructive. It's literally loves being first. Do you love being first? Is that 
the orientation of your heart. I want the place of preeminence. That's something to be on guard against constantly. So Diotrephes, his error was more related to character than, than doctrine. He liked to put himself first. He loved being in the first place. But that is the place that's reserved only for Jesus. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Colossians 1.18, And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So when we encounter Diotrephes in Scripture, we're not told that he was teaching false or erroneous doctrine. Rather, it was his character that was the issue. He was one who did not acknowledge God's delegated authority. He was one who was talking wicked nonsense against God's delegated authority. He refused to welcome the brothers, these traveling missionaries, and he also stopped those who wanted to help them. And not only that, he put them out of the church. He disfellowshipped them. He said, you're not welcome in the fellowship. We don't know whether Gaius and Diotrephes were part of the same fellowship, whether they were leaders of two different churches, but they obviously had interaction, and that was unpleasant. It was opposition for Gaius. And so John, the elder, says that if he comes, I will bring up what Diotrephes is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. That's pretty strong, a strong warning. If I come... Don't make me come back there. Don't make me turn around or stop this car. If I come, I'll bring up what he's doing. So the level of what Diotrephes was doing was such a level that it had to be addressed. This kind of behavior from a church leader cannot be overlooked. I've been a part of a church previously that when I came there, I heard people talking about their grandparents who cut down the logs down to the river and dragged them up from the river to build the church building. And they said, the only way we're leaving this church is feet first in a coffin. And we can outlast any pastor. This is our church. Things get done our way. That's the attitude and the mindset that Diotrephes had. And it is a deadly and dangerous attitude. We dare not think that it's our church. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. He purchased it with his blood. And so the elder lovingly confronts this divisive and destructive behavior. There's a pattern in the Old Testament, in Hebrew scriptures, where there's a three, no four, or six, no seven. And in Proverbs chapter six, it says, there are six things the Lord hates, no seven that are an abomination to him. And I was taught that that last one, the not the third one, but the fourth one, not the sixth one, but the seventh one, is the one that gets the emphasis, the one that's being stressed. And in Proverbs 6, that last one, the seventh one, is one who sows discord among brothers. That's what Diotrephes was doing. That is a serious, serious error, and it must be addressed, confronted lovingly. Do we care enough to confront that when we see it in the body of Christ? Coming down to the next mark of a healthy church, if you will, reflecting the character of Christ. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. You can recall the words of the Apostle Paul 
in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of God, or imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's echoed in 1 Corinthians 4, 16, and Philippians 3, 17, and Ephesians 5, 1, says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Ultimately, that's what we're called to imitate. And so if we are to imitate those who are our leaders in the faith, if we're to imitate Christ himself, the way to imitate is to have an intent focus, to watch very closely. When I was in school, in high school, in college, I took a bunch of drama classes, and we had a drama exercise where you had to be a mirror. You had to mirror what you saw, and so a person would put their hands up like this, and they move one like this, and over here, and like that, and you had to focus on their hands and be constantly watching so that you could be like you were the mirror to their hands. When I was in high school, and I had a good friend who was on the tennis team. He was our best tennis player, happened to win the state championship. I wanted to learn to play tennis like him. So I watched intently when he was playing. I watched his serve and he would rock back on his right foot and he'd let that ball go up so carefully and he'd bring that racket up. And at the peak of the toss, he would come down with that racket and smash that ball down and it would land in front of you and hit so hard it would bounce over your head and you're just thinking, how am I supposed to do anything with that? If you want to imitate Christ, we must focus on him intently. We must be watching intently as we see him revealed in scripture. We were made in the image of God to reflect God's glory, but all of us have turned away from that. All of us have sought the first place, the place of preeminence. But the good news of the gospel is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to take the punishment for our sin that we could be forgiven and restored to God. And so we turn from self-reliance, we turn from seeking the first place, and we trust in Jesus Christ, and he becomes our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. And so we were made in the image of God to reflect God's glory. That's what God's desire is for a healthy church. And we And we see in the latter verses of 3 John a testimony about Demetrius. That Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. So what's the testimony about your life? What can people testify to what they see in you? May it be that your life is being conformed more and more by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God to the very image of Jesus Christ. And finally, the last mark of a healthy church that I see in this text is reproducing disciples through face-to-face relationships. Look at verses 13 through 15. I had much to write to you, but I would not rather write... I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face-to-face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. So there are times when a church is gathered like we are today, all in one place, facing the same direction. And there are times when we meet in smaller groups, small groups throughout the week, or one-on-one, life-on-life, discipleship, face-to-face relationships. This is what God desires for the church because it's in those kind of relationships that iron sharpens iron. We're shaped and reshaped more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. True life-changing, true life change happens 
through significant relationships. We all know this is true. Think about how God has shaped your life. And it's been through people that God has placed in your life. People who love you, who want the best for you, who want it to go well with you, that you would be in good health and that it would go well with your soul. They're the kind of people who would drop anything and everything to be with you in your time of need. And I see this happening among the body of Christ, and I'm so grateful for it, that God is leading some of you, many of you, by his Holy Spirit to reach out to others, to invest in the life of another, to help them be more like Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus called the 12 disciples, he called them to be with him. He called the 12 to be with him and then sent them out to preach and to cast out demons. But it was primarily to be with him. This is the master's plan of discipleship. So in this letter, we see these five dynamics of healthy church life, rejoicing in love and truth, refreshing partners in the gospel, responding to error and opposition, reflecting the character of Christ, and reproducing disciples through face-to-face relationships. And I would encourage all of us to take this instruction to heart, to allow God's word to shape us, to be molded by his Holy Spirit into this kind of leadership and into this kind of church where God is glorified and his people have the greatest joy and the greatest good. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that in your mercy and in your love and your kindness and goodness to us, you have given us instruction in your word. You have given leaders for the church. You have given instruction for them and for all of us to shape the life of your people, that our life might reflect your glory and that our lives might be filled with your joy. And so, Lord, cause these words to be written on our hearts and to take root in our lives and to bear fruit that would last and bring glory to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.